From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. There is little doubt in my mind that he will be very widely mourned in the valley. Having said that, the fact that he had increasingly withdrawn over the past few years means that the political impact is not necessarily going to be dramatic in any way. A page has been turned with the death of Kashmir's top separatist leader, Syed Ali Shah Gilani, at the age of 92. In his long life, Gilani played many roles. He was a teacher, a three-time MLA from Sopor, a fiery orator, but eventually he hit the international spotlight as a Jamaat-e-Islami leader who advocated plebiscite in the valley and a pro-Pakistani hardline. He was a man of very firm convictions, uh, many of which I clearly did not agree with. He would be firm in stating his and he would not be offended if you were firm in stating yours, which I always regard as a good quality. He, of course, had all the uh, Kashmiri qualities of, uh, you know, courteousness, affability, hospitality. That's Radha Kumar, academic and activist who was part of the government-appointed panel of interlocutors, along with Dilip Padgaukar and M.M. Ansari, in 2010 to understand the views of the Kashmiri society. In this episode, we try and understand Syed Shah Gilani's catalyzing role in Kashmir and what made him simultaneously a charismatic and a deeply divisive figure in India. A.S. Dulat, who was Special Director of the Intelligence Bureau, Secretary of the Research and Analysis Wing, and who served as advisor to the PMO in Jammu and Kashmir from 2000 to 2004, says Gilani was someone who liked to take extreme positions. In a certain way, he was Pakistan's last man standing. He was uh, arguably the tallest of the separatist leaders. But uh, Gilani Sahib has had a very up and down career, a very checkered career. Whereas people who met him said that uh, he was a very kind, gentle, caring person. But there was a darker side to, to Gilani as well. If you recall when, uh, when Lone Sahib was uh, assassinated and he visited the Lone household, Sajjad virtually pushed him out, implying that he was responsible for Lone Sahib's killing during uh, Mr. Vajpayee's time and also during the prime ministership of Dr. Manmohan Singh. Since we stopped talking to the moderates, uh, Gilani Sahib became bigger. You know, Gilani Sahib ultimately emerged as the hawk. But now, uh, I mean, let's not forget that Gilani Sahib has been ailing for so long. He didn't know what was happening for the last many years. But uh, in this context, let me add that the government of India has been very kind to Gilani Sahib because nobody else has uh, received medical treatment supported by government of India as much as he had. And uh, he was well looked after right to the end. In his book, The Kashmir Years, this is how A.S. Dullat assesses the politics of Syed Shah Gilani. 
The only person who remained pro-Pakistan and therefore cannot reconcile with the moderate separatists is Gilani. The irony is that his Jamaat-e-Islami was reluctant to take up terrorism and was therefore the last major Kashmiri group to get involved in militancy in Kashmir. In fact, there is a story that earlier in the mid-1980s, during Zia-ul-Haq's time, the then JEI chief, Maulana Sadaduddin Tarabali, went to Pakistan and discussed the plan to bring militancy to Kashmir. Apparently, Maulana Sadduddin backed off, saying, no, if the Kashmiri takes to the gun, then the Kashmiri will be killing the Kashmiri. As the story goes, Zia said, Bhai, ye Brahmin ke aulad hain, inko kawa pila do. He basically called them cowardly and useless. The JEI continued to call it Dashat Gardi. Even Salahuddin, who had contested the 1987 election under his real name, Muhammad Yusuf Shah, had argued strongly against the gun, saying he had reservations about terrorism. Jihad is not the way to go about it, he said. And of course, Gilani was an MLA till the time the assembly was dissolved. Yet, during the 1990-91 winter, he and a few others were summoned to Kathmandu to meet the ISI and Ayub Thakur and Gulam Nabi Fai, who finally persuaded him that there was no choice now but to get into militancy. This led to the creation of the Hezbul Mujahideen, but the JEI as such wanted to stay away from militancy. Gilani in fact wrote a letter to Prime Minister P.V. Narsimarao in 1992 saying that he was willing to talk to the government if it was willing to concede that there was a dispute over Kashmir. If the government conceded that much, he would talk without any preconditions. That was then. Now, the Mirwais faction saw him as an arrogant spoiler who would never agree to anything. Probably Gilani over the years became too big for these guys to handle. After he parted company with the Huriyat, and started to come out openly in support of anything that happened, be it a militant act or a protest, he became bigger than the rest of the separatists. He is Pakistan's man in Kashmir and its most effective tool for countering India. He grows bigger every time the moderates are ignored. Do you think that we missed an opportunity there? Oh, we missed so many opportunities. So, so many of them. I mean, if you go right back to when this whole thing started, there were only a handful of JKLF boys, you know. And before the Jamaat-e-Islami came in, before the Hezbollah Mujahideen came in, before uh, Pakistan got carried away with all this, we could have done business with the JKLF. That was the easiest. This could have been snubbed out right at the start. And interestingly, when this whole thing started, because being from the Jamaat, Gilani Sahib was not very happy with the JKLF, which was pro-independence. And he referred to them as terrorists, you know, at that time. I'm talking of 89-90. He hardened after the Hurriyat was created, because, you know, then he wanted to be the major domo. He wanted to control the Hurriyat, because the Hurriyat was a, a Pakistan creation. It was the, the political wing of separatism or militancy or whatever it was. And Gilani Sahib wanted to control it. At one time, the, the Kashmiris also called him Bab Jihad, you know, father of Jihad. Today, of course, there's a major security clampdown in Srinagar. So I wanted to ask you that does he, even though he's been kind of out of active politics for some time and Kashmir situation has really changed. But 
is he still a very emotive figure in Kashmir? You see, in Kashmir, everything is emotive. Kashmir yeah. itself is emotive. You know, it's an emotive issue. We we need to understand that. It's not a law and order military problem. It's an emotive problem. It's a political problem and an emo more than that emotive problem. You know, Kashmir can change overnight. Today you could have demonstrations and tomorrow, if you wanted, you could get the same people to, to sit on a table and talk to you. If you go back to Vajpayee's time, I give you just one instance. Prime Minister was leaving Srinagar. And at the airport, uh, a journalist asked him that you're talking about talks. Will these talks be within the constitution of India? And Vajpayee turned around and said, why are we talking about the constitution? That's when he talked about Insaniyat. Yes. Insaniyat, Jamuriyat, Kashmiriyat. And, you know, the Kashmiri went, uh, went gaga over Vajpayee for, for that. Was Mr. Gilani driven more by power politics than ideology? He was driven by everything, but opportunism most of all. Let me put it like this. It, you know, his, his family and friends may not uh, like this, but I look at it like this, that if, uh, if Gilani Saab could become chief minister in JNK, he would not have been a hawk or a secessionist. So was ultimately, it? he realized that Pakistan was the best option for him. Also, let me add that Pakistan has generally backed the wrong horse. The symbolism of his presence was very large. Now, in his passing away, how do you see that impacting for the dialogue in Kashmir? Well, there is no dialogue in Kashmir. That's the sad part. What Kashmir needs uh, desperately is revival of the political and democratic process. And once that happens, then Gilani Saab will be forgotten. In any case, Gilani Saab will be forgotten. Kashmir is now uh, a very different uh, place from what it used to be, say, about three years ago, two years ago. Going forward, what do you see happening? And if not the Hurriya, do you see another organization taking place of the Hurriya? Well, the mainstream, obviously. And... Uh, I, I, that's what I say. We need to we need to engage with the mainstream. We're not engaging properly with the mainstream. It's being done in bits and pieces. You know? What I was mm. hinting at for a long time is that there is no reason that Mirwais uh, should not be mainstream. How would you assess his relationship with India? Well, uh, you you know this is the whole tragedy. It was an up and down thing. Radha Kumar recounts an instance that best illustrates Gilani's complex relationship with India. The same man who had encouraged violence and bloodshed in the valley intervened to call off the stone pelters' agitation in 2010. But this was almost at the end of his active political career. There was one occasion on which I did have more than just a meeting with him. And that was uh, in 2010, before we were appointed interlocutors. It was when the stone pelting had become, uh, you know, almost a wave across uh, the valley mm. and certainly in uh, uh, Srinagar. 
And he was under detention at that time in the Chashmashahi guest house. What I remember about the stone pelting about June and July, uh, first the pelting and then, if you recall, shooting in response by security forces. I remember being absolutely astonished that there was so little response. It was as if the government, both there and at the center, were A, of course, taken by surprise, which I don't understand why they should be, because there had been a build-up from mm. 2008 9 of stone-pelting incidences, at that point more in the small towns and the rural areas, less in the capital. But it inevitably was going to spread to the capital. At that point, I thought perhaps it was necessary for a small group of us civil society people who had been working with and on Kashmir for quite a long time. So I spoke to uh, two people I had dealt with in the past. Uh, one was Admiral Nayar, who of course is on the right wing, and the other was Amitabh Mattu. And both of them had done, uh, you know, a lot of back channel in their different ways. I managed to arrange a meeting with Mr. Gilani in the Trashmashahi detention mm. uh, where he was held. Uh, and when we went, he made actually a very interesting offer. What he said was that he too was worried by the kind of lumpen turn that the protest movement was taking. And that, uh, you know, he was worried about school dropouts and uh, children losing education. So a series of worries that he felt were pushing society in a direction that was perhaps not the way to go. And therefore, he said that he would be willing to appeal to youth to desist from stone pelting and to find different ways of expressing their anger. That was an offer that obviously we relayed to the government. And he was released. And he did actually appeal to desist from stone pelting and to look for other avenues. He started his political journey in the early 70s. He became the member of assembly from Sopor. And uh, they rejuvenated Sopor into a kind of a political capital of Jammu and Kashmir. It was a very rich place as well, a commercial hub of Kashmir. So it also helped his political career or political aspirations. Actually, these groups, whether cutting across affiliations, some were Islamists, some were secularists, whoever they were. But they saw him as a political backer. They saw him as a kind of a political face. They saw him as a kind of a moderator for their aspirations. For the generation who grew up in North Kashmir, born in 60s and 70s, cutting across political affiliations, he was a kind of a revolutionary leader for us, for the people there. That's Kashmiri journalist Iftikhar Gilani, who is now based out of Turkey. He explains why Syed Shah Gilani was such a charismatic politician for many Kashmiris of his generation. In 79, he actually halted the city on the issue of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And then a year later, when Jerusalem was annexed, it was the Sopor which went up to ruptures because of him. One good thing for him is that he gave a kind of a political sense to his constituency, which was in Sopor. 
So on the one hand, he was this uh, this central figure around whom separatist forces would would kind of gravitate towards. At the same time, he also contested elections. He was an MLA. Exactly. He was an MLA in 71. He was an MLA in 77. He lost 83. Then again in 87, he was again MLA. So and even though, even though while he was advocating secessionism, he was yeah. also trying to be part of the mainstream. If you go by his biography, his autobiography, it mentions that in 1970, the Jamaat-e-Islami, they took a concerted view that since Sheikh Abdullah those days used boycott elections, he was at those days a separatist. He used to lead the Mahazrai Shumari, Palibasit Front. They used boycott elections. So this Congress used to have a very field day. There was no voice in the Jammu and Kashmir Assembly. So they decided to participate in the elections and they decided in just a few seats and they won four seats. And he won from Sopur. And it was not a, such an easy win. It was very difficult. He had actually defeated a kind of a stalwart in Sopur. And then 70s onwards, it became a quite a, was a journey for his political aspirations. But since one issue for him was since he belonged to a Jamaat-e-Islami, which is a very strict disciplinary party, he was not able to actually raise his political cloud as he should have been the kind of a fiery orator, the kind of an... I remember quite in the college days going to one St. Pahalgam and we were actually hiking to one of the mountains. We saw it somebody Hamlet he stopped for a cup of tea and at Hamlet, they were actually running their tape of his cassette, his speech. So his uh, Jamaat-Islami cadres helped him to distribute those his speeches all around, which became actually the main ideological foundation of the 89 uprising. But because of the Jamaat-e-Islami became hesitant to actually claim that, so it was claimed by somebody else. But the ground was laid by him. Both Radha Kumar and Iftikhar Gilani say that despite his pro-Pakistan approach and the fact that his outfit, the Jamaat-e-Islami, has a party office in Pakistan, Sayyid Shah Gilani, right till the end, remained his own man, much to the annoyance of those like former Pakistan President Musharraf. General Musharraf was trying to work out a nine-point formula with the government of India on Kashmir, which Sayyid Shah Gilani opposed strenuously, leading to its eventual failure. He believed that Kashmir should, in whichever way possible, it should be a part of Pakistan. That belief, I don't think, changed very much, hmm. if at all. The, the most he would say is that other colleagues of mine do not agree. Therefore, I hold this as my view, not my organizational view. He obviously believed in speaking truth to power when he was critical, which he frequently was, of Pakistan's policies, especially, sad to say, its policies towards peacemaking. Uh, he did not hesitate to be critical, to President Musharraf or to any other Pakistani leader he met. And for that reason, while he might be highly respected, he was also not liked all that much. I think that uh, with Musharraf, the particular thing was that Musharraf was engaged in a peace process with uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee, and then, uh, then it was taken on by Prime Minister Singh. I think Musharraf, uh, you know, uh, just got annoyed because all the embassy's efforts, his own personal efforts to persuade Gilani proved unavailing. So he was frustrated and annoyed. In that sense, you might say Mr. Gilani was marginalized 
to a large extent. Suddenly from the peace process, he was marginalized, but he would not have ever been marginalized from the hardliners in Pakistan. If you again refer to his autobiography or his other some other books, where he has mentioned that he wants a plebiscite. That was his basic demand: plebiscite or the right to self-determination, as per the United Nations resolution. That was that was his demand, right or wrong, but that has been his demand. And in once he has written that if tomorrow plebiscite happens, he will vote for Pakistan. But if Pakistan loses, India wins. He will become a good citizen of India. One thing actually, this Pakistanis, it was a misnomer for them that every leader in Kashmir they can actually get them along, which was actually he proved wrong because they were quite that they are actually financing him, they are backing his politics, they are actually he's running an office in Pakistan, he's running his offices in, in and actually no everybody knows it's not a secret that they are in Pakistan to run a political party. It's not easy to run a political party. Political party everywhere, whether it is a mainstream political party, whether it is any political party, it needs money hmm. to run. So, hmm. but they, they, we are running a We are actually helping him. And then this man standing against us, it was something a quite a very shock for Pakistan. And that actually made him a quite a, a iconic figure in Kashmir that he is the person, only person who is incorruptible. He has his own beliefs. Trying actually to actually, Musharraf formula was actually appealing to almost everybody that it is actually a kind of a formula which they laid a basis for the resolution of the Kashmir. When we used to, many other friends also used to go to him and his quite one point answer used to be that I'm not subscribing to it. But if you subscribe to it, go ahead and implement it and make me politically irrelevant. I felt he was uncompromising right from the start. That he was very clear. Uh, first, of course, he felt that there should be no dialogue at all between the Hurriyat and the government of India. Then he said, okay, well, if there is, you know, given that most of the other members felt that there should be, his point uh, was to lay down conditions. And some conditions, I felt, were technical. I never understood this emphasis that government of India must recognize that Kashmir is a dispute. Uh, let me explain why I think that's a technical point. Obviously, what it meant was that you have to recognize that Pakistan is an equal stakeholder and that there is a dispute in the UN and that therefore the UN also has a role to play. And then you go back to the early resolutions and the plebiscite idea and various formulas that had been floated by the UN obviously picking the ones that uh, uh, most suited his own political approach. The reason I call it technical is that, uh, quite frankly, the UN on its own never solves anything. After Simla, in any case, the role of the UN became extremely ambiguous. And indeed, this whole question of dispute, not dispute, really became rather irrelevant because uh, Simla certainly acknowledged that there had to be an agreement between India and Pakistan to resolve the competing claims on Jammu and Kashmir. It's certainly the end of an era. He became the leader of disaffected youth. He had far more influence over them than did um, other members of the Hurriyat.
For all the bad press that Syed Shah Gilani got in India and his pro-Pakistan stance, which resulted in his house arrest from 2010 until his death two days ago, Iftikhar Gilani says that he did have a moderating effect on the cauldron of Kashmiri politics. At the same time, as Dulat and Radha Kumar have already pointed out, Syed Shah Gilani's legacy will not be enduring because he leaves behind no organization and no political heir, says Iftikhar. He was not in a power, so it's very difficult to judge him what he should have, he could have done or he should, have, should not have done. But sometime that I remember that in 2010, street politi- street agitation in 2016, after Burhanwani, what happened to Kashmir, what happened to Kashmir he was a kind of a, a salutary or moderating effect he had. In 2010, he was actually accused of ending that movement of 2010. Many people and many hardliners, they said they could have gotten freedom in 2010, but because of him, they, he stopped the, he actually went to downtown and stopped those stone throwing incidents. What kind of a uh, mark does he leave? These chinars, they don't allow anybody to grow beneath them, whether deliberately or maybe it, 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 it happens so. Because people do not see others that they can actually replace him. It happened with him as well. It happened with Sheikh Abdullah as well. But Sheikh Abdullah did one thing. He had a family. So he did his family stepped into his shoes, even though those shoes were quite bigger for them. But for him as well, since he didn't promote his promote anybody in his, in his family, the people around him, people do not see them that they are they have that caliber to actually match his charisma, match his oratory, match his that words. He was actually a kind of a magic of this Urdu language as well. When Philip Nair wrote about his autobiography, when he wrote the first book of Jail, Jail Diary, Philip Nair had actually reviewed that and said that it is a great misfortune for the Urdu language that he is in politics. He was not an organization man. You can just make it out. 2008 did one, one good thing for Kashmir is that it skews the leadership. It made three people, Gilani, Mirwais, and Yasin. Yasin because of his Jikelia, Mirwais, and they, because of his being in Srinagar, and Gilani. Everybody knew that these, these are the three people. These are the three actors. These are three rovers and shakers. 2010, it was the Gilani's show. Most Brahmani, it was his show. But he, all these three people went along. So over the years, it eliminated the most of the Hurriyat. It was these three people, they became a kind of a personal dissented politics around these three persons. Hmm. Now out of these three persons, one is in jail. One has gone. So there is only one person left. The problem is that his capability and his capacity, whether he will be able to actually make the sense or step into the shoes of these people. Today's episode was produced by Arun George, Jairaj Singh and Joshua Thomas. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.